The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the Sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person or on live stream. For details, go to fapc.org. And now, here is Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston. Friends, our scripture reading comes this morning from the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, beginning at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land that I am giving you, the land shall observe a Sabbath for the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in their yield. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your unpruned vine. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. You may eat what the land yields during the Sabbath, you and your male and female slaves, your hired and your bound laborers who live with you. For your livestock also, and for the wild animals in your land, all its yield shall be for food. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land. And you shall hallow the fiftieth year. And you shall proclaim, proclaim liberty throughout the land and to all of its inhabitants. It shall be the year of jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow or reap the aftergrowth or harvest the unpruned vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you, and you shall eat only what the field itself produces. Listen now for God's word to you as it echoes to us from Luke chapter 4, beginning with the 16th verse. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Every so often, Saturday Night Live captures our cultural moment with a sketch that offers crystalline insight into our social condition. A a bit of brief comedy that's so perfect, it's almost painful. Sometimes that cast nails it. And I think this happened in their recent parody of a game show entitled, So You Think You Won't Snap. The premise of the game show is simple. The host of the show, Bowen Yang, reads real stories from the news. And and participants are told that they will win a million dollars if they can calmly listen to these stories. A million dollars for staying momentarily chill. Easy, right? (laughs) Well, maybe not so much. As Yang puts it, people are on edge and I'm here to push them over. Some of the contestants put up a good fight, valiantly repressing their anxiety for a minute or two before buckling under a stream of unsettling news. On the other hand, one seemingly calm man only needs to hear two words, Elon Musk, before he snaps, sweeping the contents of a table onto the floor. Another African-American fellow pleads with the host after listening to a string of stories describing Kanye West's recent antics. Why, he asks, are you doing this to me? Eventually, every single contestant snaps. Maybe you can relate. In these turbulent times, when wicked cross-currents undermine the global economy, in this brutal world where suicide drones target the Ukrainian power grid and threaten tens of thousands with a very cold winter, in this conflicted country where political rancor has so effectively divided us that some in these United States now question the very value of democracy Who doesn't feel like snapping? This is especially true, I think, when it comes to environmental issues. The sheer amount of bad news out there is alarming. And raising the ethical stakes, both climate change and pollution, like inflation, afflict the poorest populations out there with disproportionate suffering you know the cruel algebra. Hurricane Ian showed no partiality as to race, creed, or economic status in inflicting wanton destruction on Florida's west coast. And yet, in the aftermath of the terrible storm, those with the least are struggling the most. This is true on a global scale. We use Humanity uses the oceans as a dumpster for millions of tons of plastic waste every year. To no one's surprise, this has an adverse effect on marine life. Our reliance on single-use plastics 
which do not rot and which will outlive everyone in this room is making the vast oceans of this planet sick. According to the US-based Center for Biological Diversity, there are now over 30 trillion pieces of plastic in the world's oceans, from the equator to the poles, from Arctic ice sheets to the seafloor. You, you may have seen at some point pictures of the enormous island of plastic waste that swirls off California's coast. Those who monitor the health of the seas call it the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. But sadly, my friends, these images are the proverbial tip of the iceberg. Only 5% of the ocean's plastic contaminants float on the surface. Copious quantities of plastic can be found suspended underwater. These indigestible and indestructible fragments are responsible for the deaths of more and more marine life every year. The world's fisheries are struggling under this growing threat, and so too are poor coastal communities that depend on these fish for their livelihoods. Hotter temperatures, melting glaciers, rising sea levels, dead spots in the ocean, it makes for a grim litany. And, and what's more, we know, we know that these conditions are harder to survive, to endure, to face if you have fewer resources. So what are we to do? How are we to respond? On this, as with every other important issue, we are a divided society. People react to reports of environmental peril in a myriad of ways. Some dismiss these warnings as an elaborate hoax. Some argue that proposed cures for the planet's woes will create worse problems than the illness itself. Others feel powerless. Climate change is simply too enormous to tackle. Still others acknowledge our planet's tremendous challenges and then recalibrate the scope of their compassion. I doubt we have the capacity or the corporate will to move the needle on climate change, so I'll focus on securing the safety and maybe the happiness of my family and friends. What else can I do? At the end of the day, that may be the most common response people have to our planet's woes. I'll take care of mine and hope that someone else fixes the problem with as little cost to me as possible. What else can I do? This morning, I want to suggest that our faith, like an eager student waving her hand in the front row of the class, is begging to answer that question. In other words, God has a plan, and it's right here, in of all places, Leviticus. Listen, says the good book, there are times when God looks at the world 
rubs the divine brow and says to the heavenly host, for Pete's sake, it's happened again. Humankind has backed itself into a corner and it's having one heck of a furious fight. You know what the Holy One's talking about, don't you? There are times when human community stops functioning. There are times when we get to a place as a society where problem solving seems impossible, when, when anger and frustration are sucking us down like quicksand, and when nothing seems capable of freeing us from the muck. I'm talking about moments when the American Pledge of Allegiance sticks in the back of our throat with its lofty assurance of one nation, indivisible. There are times when liberty and justice for all seem like a childish fantasy and not a compelling vision that we're all working to make real. When this happens, when a society freezes, locked in perpetual conflict and unable to see, much less confront injustice, when caring for those in need, those at the margins, seems like it ought to be somebody else's problem and not our corporate responsibility, well then, says God in Leviticus, then it's time to hit the reset button. It's time for Jubilee. Do you know about Jubilee? In the book of Leviticus, a collection of ancient Hebrew laws, God puts a special celebration on everyone's calendar. Every 50 years, the Holy One declares, the Israelite people shall sound a trumpet. They shall blow a ram's horn. The Hebrew word for ram is yubel, from which we get our word jubilee. Blow the ram's horn, says God, and declare a year of rest, rest for animals, rest for vines, rest for fields, rest for all people. It shall be a time of liberty. Slaves shall be freed. People shall return to ancestral plots of land. In fact, Leviticus states, during jubilee, all property shall revert as if it were leased to its original owner. This grand reset, this period of jubilee is time for you to contemplate. In a jubilee year, people do not actively cultivate the land. Instead, they forage for food and accept whatever gifts the land gifts them. As they do this, people remember that they live every day dependent on the grace of God. In a jubilee year, this sense of grace is supposed to permeate every relationship. People forgive debts, financial ones, but they also set aside personal grudges and resentments. They assist individuals around them who need help, and they look to heal the broken places in the wider society. A jubilee year is a, is a season for recalibrating, a time for abandoning destructive patterns and beginning anew. Jesus was clearly aware of this tradition. 
He had it on his calendar. In fact, the very first time that Jesus stands up to preach, he proclaims a jubilee. Listen to his words again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. That sounds pretty darn fantastic. So naturally, we want to know, did it ever happen? <laughs> did ancient Hebrew communities actually blow the trumpet, forgive debts, and spend an entire year focused on the blessing of being alive? Some scholars argue that there's no evidence that any community ever engaged in this radical reset. Leviticus, they say, speaks of a utopia that never happened. Others say, hmm, not so fast. They point to historical records of times in the ancient world when rulers decreed a clean slate for a population of people. Clean slate edicts, real things, freed captives, canceled debt, and encouraged people to return to their ancestral homes and reunite with their families. Leviticus takes these occasional governmental decrees and puts them on the people's regular calendar. Every 50 years, God declares to the people, you shall pause. Take time to think about what matters. Slow down. Pray. Be kind to your neighbor. Break free from destructive patterns. Hit the reset button. Did the people ever observe a jubilee like that? Well, we do have evidence that ancient Hebrew communities put jubilee on their calendars. And writing in the first century, the Jewish historian Josephus describes communities who observed some aspects of jubilee. But when it came time to really hit the reset button, Josephus reports many, many of the people looked for workarounds. Folk weren't exactly sure they wanted to forgive each other's debts or to allow their fields to lie fallow. Does this surprise us? No. It sounds like typical human behavior, and it pretty much describes our current predicament. We are wedded, welded, to our destructive patterns. We like them politically, economically, and environmentally. We fight pitched battles over these topics, but we have precious little gain to show for our efforts. And this has turned many of us into cynics. When God says, blow the ram's horn, we shake our heads. Seriously? <laughs> You're asking us to pause? Look, God, we're a whole lot more likely to snap. Come on, Leviticus, don't 
toss some ancient and loopy plan on the table. Don't talk to me, not seriously, with all the stress in my life about ram's horns and 50-year cycles for renewing our relationship to the land. We are sophisticated modern people. We know what will work and what will not. Don't we? Do you remember the ozone layer? When I was in college, the ozone layer was a hot topic. The ozone layer is a thin section of the Earth's atmosphere. It, it, it's, it lies about 20 to 30 miles above us in the stratosphere, and it absorbs ultraviolet radiation. Basically, the ozone is a layer of sunscreen encircling the Earth. And good golly, we need it. <laughs> Ultraviolet light causes multiple types of skin cancer, and it also contributes to the warming of our planet. The ozone layer is super important. And in the late 1970s and 1980s, scientists realized that it had a problem. The ozone layer was deteriorating. It had thinned so much that it was no longer doing its job. The culprit was a category of popular chemicals that humans were using as propellants and refrigerants, chlorofluorocarbons. These chemicals were destroying our planet's sunscreen. Now, after presenting evidence, which was mercifully not undermined by internet trolls or fear-mongering pundits, call it the gentle 80s, the United Nations passed the Montreal Protocol. Ratified in 1987, the Montreal Protocol banned over 100 chemicals that were known to be ozone-depleting. It was an historic agreement. To this day, this is for you trivia buffs out there, to this day, the Montreal Protocol is the only UN treaty ever to be ratified by every country on Earth. All 198 member states said yes. I find this uncommon show of global unity to be an encouraging sprig of hope. Humans are not, it seems, totally incapable of working together and taking sensible action in the face of an environmental crisis. But that's not all. There's more good news here, stunningly good news. The phase out of ozone-depleting substances, my friends, has worked. The ozone layer has been steadily healing at a rate of 1% to 3% every year. Our ozone layer, scientists now say, will be back to normal by 2030. It took 50 years to get there, but we did it. We actually moved the needle. Do you see, my friends, where I'm going with this? 
The good news embedded in Leviticus, the good news preached by Jesus in his very first sermon is that we can do it. In the face of enormous challenges, humankind can choose an alternative to endless fighting, resigned apathy, or just plain snapping. We can pause. We can shelve our despair. We can cease destructive behavior. And doing so will not, as some suggest, crush us. It will reorient us. It will reconnect us to this beautiful world and to our neighbors in need. My friends, if we focus on the broken places, if we resolve to change, and I'm talking here about ourselves, <laughs> if we set aside our narcissistic need to always be right and instead embrace the desire to make a difference, if we stop messing around with the facts and pair scientific truth with just and loving action, we can actually start to heal this planet. What say you? Will you embrace God's holy pause? Will you hit reset? Will you encourage others to do the same? Will you put Christ's call to jubilee on your calendar and allow it to shape your vision, guide your steps, permeate your relationships? Are you ready, my friends, to blow the ram's horn? Go forth from this place, my friends, to trumpet God's jubilee. And as you go, have courage. Hold fast to what is good. Do not return evil for evil, but strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, honor all people, love and serve the Lord. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.